I've never been a deeply religious person. My parents were raised in the Catholic Church, but considering they got pregnant as unmarried teenagers, you know, maybe they weren't the most dutiful Christians. But they sent me to Sunday school as a kid where I tried to memorize prayers that I have long since forgotten and quietly mused about what I would rather be doing with my Sunday mornings. When I sat in the pews of St. Mary's Church, I marveled at the high vaulted ceilings, the intricate detail of the stained glass windows, the awesome structural and architectural elements that went into creating this awe-inspiring facade. But I didn't feel whatever I was supposed to feel. Grace? Fulfillment? The presentation was all there, but something was missing, some X-factor, and so I felt bored whenever I went to church and Sunday school. More so, I felt a bit like a failure or an imposter, because I knew this was supposed to mean something, but it wasn't clicking for me. After I took First Communion in, I want to say, second or third grade, my mom gave me the option of staying in Sunday school or not, and I chose not. The path of religion, it wasn't for me. Why, then, you may ask, is O Holy Night my favorite Christmas song? For the same reason that soul is my favorite genre of music. Soul takes the pride and the passion of gospel music steeped in African-American culture and swaps God or Jesus as the subject matter with a secular you, whatever girl or boy is being sung to or about. The result is emotional, sensual pop music that is not religious in nature, but still weirdly spiritually uplifting in its resonance. At least, that's how it's always felt to me. Soul music lifts me up and fulfills me in the way church never did. It is where I go to find peace, to get right in my head and my heart. My priests are named Otis Redding, Al Green, Arthur Conley, everyone involved in the Motown sound. And of course, the Archbishop, Sam Cooke. We're having a party Dancing to the music. A minister's son born in Mississippi and raised in Chicago, Sam Cooke became lead singer of the gospel group The Soul Stirrers in 1950 when he was 19 years old. By the middle of the decade, however, Cooke's musical instincts and ambitions pulled him away from the group as he started to rewrite and rearrange classic gospel songs as secular love songs that crossed over onto mainstream charts. During his solo career, which lasted only eight years from 1957 to 1964, Sam Cooke produced 30 hits in the top 40 charts. He only released a few full albums, focusing instead on singles. He wrote most of his own music and lyrics, either composing wholly original tunes or repurposing old gospel standards. In 1961, he started his own record label and publishing imprint to help other black musicians. He was instrumental in both the formation of the soul genre and in popularizing the African-American sound of gospel and R&B for a broader mainstream American audience. On December 11, 1964, Sam Cooke was fatally shot to death in a motel. He was 33 years old. But his legacy as the King of Soul endures, as you will hear over the next hour. Everybody swing. 
another episode of Fire and Water Records. I'm Ryan Daly, and in honor of Black History Month, this episode is dedicated to one of my all-time favorite artists, the King of Soul, Sam Cooke. And I know when you think of Soul, you probably think of horror comics, too, which is why I've got the perfect guest for this show. You know him as the host of the Long Box of Darkness and co-host on Into the Weird, a Bronze Age Marvel podcast. Please welcome Mr. Herman Lowe. What's going on, Herman? How are you? Hey, Ryan. I'm uh, back on, you know, another Fire and Water Network show, and uh, I haven't been on many, but this is one of the ones I've always wanted to be on. So I'm doing pretty good, all all things considering. So thanks for having me on again on one of your shows. And, uh, you know, I'm ready to talk some... uh, some Sam Cook. Let's get cooking. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. I, I am happy to have you out. Um, I I threw this one out there, and I didn't even realize it would be necessarily as topical as it was because I threw this suggestion out a couple of months ago. I was like, I wanted to do episodes on these particular artists. Anybody interested? And you mentioned Sam Cook. Why is that? Why why this particular artist? Why did you want to talk about this? Well, you know, um, first off, let me, you know, get to something you just mentioned about, you know, um, your soul origin, you know, um, how you got to liking soul. And, you know, I had a bit of a different angle. I never even knew as a teenager and even, you know, as a a younger than a teenager, and I never knew soul existed. You know, I used to listen to guys like Stevie Wonder and and Marvin Gaye and and even to white singers who are considered soul singers like, you know, Dusty Springfield Mm -hmm. and maybe the Righteous Brothers. And, um, you know, I just thought they were like early pop hits, you know, because they had already crossed over. I never realized that it took someone like Sam Cooke to actually be the bridge, you know, between black, uh, you know, traditional maybe jazz and, and, and traditional black music and, you know, pop. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, it took a, a bit of research on my part to find out about that. Because like I said, I never differentiated between soul music and, and pop music. For me, it was all, I mean, you could put Michael Jackson's 80s stuff next to maybe some of the, the earlier soul hits from the 70s, and it would almost sound the same to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, So, you know, um, when I finally find out about soul music, it was it's much later in my life. And then I realized all the hits that I loved growing up as a kid, you know, because my mom, she was big into music, my dad too, but my mom, uh, because she was a music teacher, you know, at, oh. at various schools throughout her life. So, you know, she would play popular, you know, tunes on the piano, sometimes just by ear. Uh, she loved to do that. And, you know, so the house was always filled with music when I was a kid. And, um, you know, she played lots of soul songs. And uh, I never realized they were soul. <laughs> so eventually, you know, I tracked down those songs from my childhood and also by you know obviously quizzing my mom and she would point me to the right artists and so on and you know the reason why particularly I'm glad you know or or that I wanted to come on for the Sam Cooke show though is because originally as some of the listeners know I'm from South Africa and I grew up in the apartheid era Mm -hmm. and um, you know there was this funny thing going on in the 70s which was when I was like you know uh, uh, in kindergarten uh, where, you know, there were a lot of hits playing on the radios 24-7. But, you know, and, and the, the white folks, I'm talking about the, the apartheid supporters, you know, of the National Party and the uh, Reformed National Party and Conservative Party, those guys who were controlling the country, they listened to these hits and they didn't realize that it was by black singers because <laughs> the DJs didn't make it known, you know, that, oh, this is a song, you know, by uh, young Michael Jackson and, you know, they never mentioned they were black, you know, so that they could actually play the hits, you know, which mm-hmm. was also 
trending in, in the rest of the world at that point in time. <laughs> so you had all of these racist people loving songs that they didn't realize were sung by these amazing genius level black artists. You know, so my mom, though, she knew. <laughs> so she would often, you know, um, shock her kids because sometimes she would teach at a, you know, depending on uh, the, the job that she was doing, she would teach at either an elementary school or a high school. We didn't have junior high schools. It was all just, you know, senior high school for us. Uh-huh. Um, she would teach at senior high schools and then she would shock these Afrikaner kids, these products of, of racist upbringing and indoctrination with, oh, let's listen to this song. And then she would play something like Michael Jackson's, you know, One Day in Your Life, you know, uh, and then uh, they would love it. They would go crazy. They would, um, they would, their minds would be blown. And then she would say, you know, this is by uh, Michael Jackson. And they're like, oh, okay. And then she would say, he's black. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's just the way that she, being a liberal, you know, back then, mm-hmm. um, and she was always, you know, supportive of the, the far left, if you can call it that, if that even existed in South Africa at the time. That's how she tried to do her part a little bit in opening, you know, the kids' minds and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So I guess it comes from my mom. You know, that's the the, the long way of saying it, right, Ryan? But for me personally, it all started with a movie in 1987. And you'll definitely know which one I'm talking about. And that movie's Inner Space. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. You, You obviously you're a fan, right? I mean, how can you not be? Dennis Quaid, Meg Ryan, and then Martin Short, right? And, you know, that's where I first, I mean, my mom wasn't playing a lot of Sam Cooke music on the piano. I don't know why. I mean, she, I never actually asked her if she was a fan or not, but that's where I first encountered his music, you know, uh, I think specifically the song Cupid, Mm -hmm. which was, you know, Meg Ryan and, and Dennis Quaid's song in that movie as a couple. And then obviously also later, I think, Martin Short and and Dennis Quake, they dance to Twisting the Night Away, um, you know, while he's inside his body floating around and playing the music. So, you know, two great scenes. And uh, that's how I became a fan of Sam Cooke's music, because, you know, I dug those two tunes. And I think that was the first time I had heard them, actually. Oh, yeah. It's strange because, I mean, he's obviously so famous. But I think the soul music that was playing in South Africa in the in the late 80s was more lots of uh, 70s hits, probably uh, lots of Stevie Wonder, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. So not a lot of Sam Cooke for some reason. That's the first encounter I had with the guy's music. And then obviously I, I tracked some of his uh, albums down. Uh, I think it was already on, on, on tape you know, tape form, cassette tapes that that point in time. But then in the early 90s, I got some CDs of his. And then, you know, I was a fan, but I wouldn't call myself a super fan, right, Ryan? You know what I mean? I only probably really got into his music when I think it was in the early 2000s, I bought um, an album of his, which was sort of a greatest hit album. I think it was called um, uh, Portrait, you know, uh, and that's the one I bought. I think it was 2002 or three. And that had some of his, well, that had basically all of his greatest hits. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I started picking up, you know, uh, the CDs of his old albums here and there. And then I became more of a of, of a, a deeply rooted kind of fan, you know, where I got interested in his life. And then, of course, his controversial death even made it more, you know, it's, it's kind of like a what I would call a John Lennon or a Bruce Lee type of death, you know, which was... Um, too soon, but also there's all of these other, you know, factors associated with what happened and nobody really knows. It's a mystery. And, right. you know, so um, uh, that also fueled my fandom for Sam Cooke. But I think, you know, I had my own moment in the 1990s where 
um, and this is a very long story. Sorry, listeners, but this is the final say I have on my origin of Sanskrit. <laughs> Sorry, uh, I refer to the, these moments, Ryan. I don't know um, as Dr. King Schultz moments. I mean, okay. this is from the movie Chang- Django Chang- Unchained. <laughs> you know the scene where where Schultz uh, walks into Calvin Candy's library, and um, mm-hmm. you know Calvin Candy's just gotten the better of them, and or he thinks he has, and then Dr. Schultz wants to give him a parting shot, so he says, "You know your favorite author, Alexandre Dumas. You know mm-hmm. who wrote the Three Musketeers? He's black. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and then that's like the ultimate." You know, a slam to old Calvin Candy. And then, of course, Dr. Schultz dies after that. Now, I had a similar moment, like my mom did many times, but she sort of orchestrated those moments, you know. But with me in the 1990s, you know, I was having coffee in a coffee store with one of my friends, and he was unfortunately, you know, when you're from an, a, a country where racism is so prevalent, like South Africa. Uh, you know, you you bound to have some racist friends that you're sh- slowly trying to shed, you know, like a snakeskin. And this was one of them. But he was a really great friend to me in the 80s. And then we got together again in the 1990s in a coffee shop. And, you know, the coffee shop was playing, um, I think it was Cupid as well, you know, playing some Sam Cooke music. Um, you know, that was the time when everybody was soundtracking their cafes. You yeah. know what I mean, Ryan? Yeah. yeah. So I, th- I think that obviously they still do it. But that was a new thing for us back then. So I was sitting there having coffee with him. And then he was going on this racist rant politically inspired and i was just having none of it i was just i was already like tired of him and then you know for some reason he said you know oh man i love the song that's playing dude do you remember the movie inner space and we used to watch it as kids over and over again and i said yeah man sam cook and he said sam cook oh yeah okay and i said you know he's black right <laughs> <laughs> and immediately he was like very upset because he already knew the way i leaned politically and you know so he was, you know, always looking for a dig, but this time I got a good dig in. Oh, yeah. yeah, so that's my abbreviated, <laughs> not really abbreviated at all, history with how I came to love, you know, uh, Mr. Cook and his music. Well, that's great. I, I love that your mother had such a big influence on it and uh, and that she was doing her part to actually, like, uh, to, to reach a lot of the children, the impressionable children at a young age. That's great. Um, yeah, okay, there, there's a lot to go on. I mean... Yes, you, you touched on his his controversial death, and we will come back to that um, a little bit later. Um, but for the listeners, in, I don't want to forget this, and I'll probably mention it a couple of times. Um, but if you want some extracurricular viewing to go along with this episode of Fire and Water Records, um, two videos I want to mention. Uh, and again, I did not intend for this to be this episode to be as timely as it did because I first conceived this a couple of months ago. But there is a new movie uh, that is out. It's on Amazon Video uh, in the states. Hopefully, you can you can find a way of watching this. Um, but the movie is called One Night in Miami, uh, based off of a play. It is directed by Regina King, who got, I believe, just got a Golden Globe nomination uh, for best director for it. Uh, it is a fictional account of a sort of real event, real story, um, about a meeting in a hotel room with four friends in February 1964. Those four friends include Malcolm X, Cassius Clay, who would later become the boxer Muhammad Ali, Sam Cooke, and also the NFL star, future movie star Jim Brown. 
Um, the four of them, it is true that they were all, they all knew each other. They were four of the most successful and high profile black people in America at this time. So they kind of gravitated to each other and became really good friends. Most of the movie takes place the night that Cassius Clay beat Sonny Liston to become the heavyweight champion of the boxing world. Um, although there are a few things in the story that kind of play with the the timeline that that kind of don't don't match up uh in particular with things about sam cook and a song that we're going to talk about later on in the episode um but i'll just i I highly recommend this movie i have watched it three times um i I love the movie i think it's like one of the best ones i've seen in a while uh sam cook is played by leslie odom jr does a great job uh he played aaron burr in the hamilton the the production uh that is on disney plus too another movie that you can watch to go along with this one that we'll talk about is it's on netflix it's a documentary special they had a series called remastered uh and it's a mini movie it's about an hour long called the two deaths of sam cook and it talks about his rise to fame and everything like that and then a lot of the controversy surrounding his death at the end um but i recommend both of those they're fascinating little insights into the character uh or the the well as he was a character, but the person that was Sam Cooke. Um, mm. But this show is about the music, so we're going to get into it. Um, and as we were, Herman and I were talking about a little bit before, Sam Cooke was a master of popular music. That's what he did. He he made music that was popular and accessible for white boys like myself, as well as mm. the, the, his his home black audience. And he just he merged those two. So the songs themselves we're going to be talking about have great hooks and catchy lyrics. They're not the deepest poetry in the world. I mean, we're not we're not going to have to analyze this the yeah. way Sean Ross and I talked about Fiona Apple or other things like this. Um, so we're, I think we're going to go through some of these songs a little bit faster and just kind of talk about our impressions. But I think you'll also hear a lot of the same repeated phrases from us and just like, yeah, so that's, that is what it is. But yeah, uh, Herman, you're going to start us off with, I think, the, the right place to start off. So what is your first song? All right, the first song on my list is arguably his most popular commercial hit, and that is the song, You Send Me. At first I thought it was infatuation, but ooh, it's lasted so long. Now I find myself wanting to marry you and take you home, This was obviously written by Sam as well, but um, it, it has a bit of a funny story um, around who wrote it. Um, uh, for a while there, Sam was crediting his brother as having written it because of you know a royalty uh, loophole in the contract that he had at the time. Mm-hmm. With um, I think it was that point in time was Keen Records. He hadn't signed with RCA Records yet. Once he did sign with RCA Records, that was another. Uh, one for the books, right, Ryan? Because no other black artist had ever gotten such a lucrative music contract. Mm-hmm. 
in the music industry for you know as as Sam did at that point in time. So he not only broke you know um, the mold when it came to hits, but also to you know business and contracts and you know uh, how he approached the music industry as as a black artist. So you know I think this you send me being his first the, his first breakout hit in the popular music genre. He had just recently stepped uh, away from gospel music. Um, and this was 1957. He had made another pop song just before this called Lovable, but it didn't have any drive behind it, especially not from, uh, you know, the recording studio Keen Records, because they, they, they didn't like the type of music that Sam was making at the time. So, you know, um, with You Send Me, though, uh, it, it crossed all genres immediately. And, and, you know, before that, people were thinking, you know, would he be a success? Could he successfully cross over from gospel? Everybody was saying no, because it had never been done before. And uh, this proved them wrong. I mean, he basically became an overnight pop music success, if you think about it like that. So uh, you send me great little tune. Um, basically, like you say, very simplistic uh, in, in, with the lyrics. But um, I think uh, Sam's music is not, like you say, you shouldn't look at it from a lyrics perspective. It's uh, it's either love songs or it's something that, that tries to force lyrics into, you know, a civil rights uh, direction a little bit, you know, a protest song. But then it's still very smooth and it's very, very, you know, it has a calming effect rather than, you know, like sweeping people up and saying, hey, let's start a revolution. Right. So, you know, you can't really look at his lyrics too much. But this song is great as as a song that this universally liked, I think. And um, I've got a little bit of a personal story with this song, too. Like I was um, this is just, you know, something that that proves how how music and memory goes together. Right, Ryan, when I was in I think it was 2007, there was a massive earthquake in Taiwan. And I'm, you know, an expat living and teaching in Taipei City. And uh, I was at home at the time. And, uh, you know, my iPod was, you know, playing something. I think it was um, set to, you know, like shuffle. And uh, I was listening to this song, You Send Me, and then the earthquake hit. And I remember <laughs> we, we were, had to evacuate the building and things were falling all around me. Books leapt off the shelves. And, you know, that's why I remember it so clearly because of, you know, that I was listening to the song. And in 2007, that earthquake hit. Wow. So, um, uh, but, you know, that's not the reason I love this song. <laughs> it didn't <laughs> save my life or anything. <laughs> But, um, I mean, it might have called me down, though, you know, because it's got a very calming effect. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I just love this song. And, and it's definitely a Nat King Cole inspired, you know, it's got that crooner type of sound mm -hmm. to it, you know, like, you. I like it when they, you know, um, alternate between, you know, uh, levels like that. And mm -hmm. Sam's a master at that. So I love this song. It's yeah, it is a great. It's it's catchy. It's got that earworm sensibility. Um, yeah, it's it's not overly complicated. I think one of the, and one of the reasons why this launch, I mean, it, it's really secured. It, it shot him to the top of the charts right away, and it made him that overnight success that you said. Is this song is a great showcase for his voice and his raw talent and what he could do. Um, mm. You just it, it, this it lives with his voice and how how good it is and how catchy it is. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, this was one of his first charting singles in 1957. It hit number one on Billboard's R&B charts and the Hot 100. Now, this was a time when those charts were strictly separated, where you had the R&B music charts for predominantly black artists, and then you had the Hot 100, which was a lot of the more mainstream pop stuff. You didn't have a lot of crossover between them until Sam Cooke who had this at number one on both charts. 
Mm. Um, and this was supposed to be a B-side, but when he submitted yeah. the single, the disc jockeys liked this song better than the song that it was attached to. So they started That's playing right. this one more. Yeah. I don't know what was the song on the other side, but it might have been Summertime. Yeah, I but, think, yeah. Um, yeah, but you're right. The, the disc jockeys all realized that, wow, this is hit. This is a hit that's just waiting to... Mm-hmm to be released to the to the public and yeah they they already recognized it then so i mean you can listen to it now and you can definitely see that this is the first super hit of soul if you want to put it like that because i mean there are other people who would be considered the founders of soul maybe someone like ray charles or somebody but but sam cook definitely was the first superstar of soul and if this being his first hit this could be considered the first super hit you know of uh, in the soul genre all right, moving on. My first song for this selection is Another Saturday Night. Another Saturday night that I ain't got nobody. I got some money cause I just got paid. Now how I wish I had someone to talk to. I'm in an awful way. Dig this. I got in town a month ago. I seen a lot of girls assisting. If I could meet him, I could get him, but as yet I haven't met him. That's why I'm in the shape I'm in. Here another Saturday night that I ain't got nobody. I got some money cause I just got paid. Now how I wish I had someone to talk to. I'm in an awful way. Now, I, <laughs> I knew the Cat Stevens version of this song, I think, before I heard the Sam Cooke one. Uh, and and I, maybe I had heard the Sam Cooke version. I'm, I'm not sure, but I definitely knew the Cat Stevens version. Uh, and, and this kind of goes into sort of that backstory where and I, my, Neil and I mentioned this when we did our whole Father's Day tribute episode to, to my dad and all of the music that he played. And he was definitely, you know, 80% of the music that he was listening to was rock and roll and singer-songwriter. But mm-hmm. he also listened to like a lot of this older stuff, and he got into soul and R and B, and we heard some of these. And he had, well, either when he wasn't playing record albums, and later on when he started like uh, changing to cassette tapes, he would make his own mixed tapes. You know, prior before CDs, before MP3, everything like that. Yeah. You know, yeah. growing up, this is now <laughs> me in like the eighties and nineties. He had these mixed tapes that he labeled oldies. Mm. And I'm kind of fascinated by the fact that he labeled them oldies because these were all songs from the 50s and 60s. But that was when he was a kid. You know, like that was growing up. That was his, like, music. And now he's doing this maybe 20 years later, 20 years removed from that, or, or, you know, like 30 (laughs) years. And I'm trying to think if I was doing the same thing, like, if I was making a mix CD of like '90s alternative rock or grunge or something like that, or or hip hop from like NWA or something like that, would I call yeah. that oldies? Would I ever put that term on it? I was like, no, I wouldn't. Um, but my dad did, so so he had the like the oldies genre. That's what I associated with, and yeah. a number of those songs were were Sam Cooke ones that I that I had heard, and and I'll talk about a couple of those songs. Um, but getting back to Another Saturday Night, this song, I can't think of what inspired me, but I started going back and listening to more of this, like that oldies, the, genre, the soul genre, particularly when I, when I went to college. Now we're talking early 2000s, so we're actually like right around the time that you started really getting into it. Um, mm. And this song, when I heard the Sam Cooke version and really did a deep listen, this immediately became my favorite song. 
I listened to it over and over and over. Yeah. Um, this really set off my love for Sam Cooke. Uh, and I, that, that's when I started going through my dad's old catalog of stuff like that and his Motown collection. I started building my own playlist. I started re- actually doing research about him. That's when I found out more of this information about his life, about his death. Um, so this song was written by Cook in 1963 when he was touring in London. And according to the story, it was he was staying at a hotel that did not allow women visitors. Hence the, the line from the chorus, another Saturday night and I ain't got nobody. Mm. Um, and I, I just, I've, I've always got a kick out of this song. I love the humor and the wit that's involved with this. And I'm, I'm sure you will pick up on the same line when he says, another fella told me he had a sister who looked just fine. Instead of being my deliverance, she had a strange resemblance to a cat named a cat Frankenstein. Named Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, man. You just like, you, you laugh it. at it. It's just like that, that bit of like wordsmith and everything and, and playing and having fun with the, the audience and everything. And it's just, it's a, mm. it's a fun song to listen to. So for a time, this was, was my favorite song ever. It would eventually be replaced by another Sam Cooke song, and we'll come back to that later on in the episode. But yeah, what do you yeah. think about this one? Oh yeah, same. I love the song to bits. It's probably in my top three favorite Sam Cooke songs. Of course, like you said, I also had you know this Cat Stevens version first, and I you know Cat Stevens being a singer songwriter himself, I thought he wrote it you know for the longest time, and mm-hmm. it was only. You know, I think in somewhere in the early 2000s, even, yeah, like you said, when we got into Sam Cooke, um, you know, proper, then I realized, hey, Sam had written it. And, you know, this speaks to how great a songwriter he was. He could write ballads, he could write protest songs, but he could also write these great, you know, upbeat, almost like a dance hit for the time, if you think about it. I mean, this is yeah. on the same yeah. bar as Twisting the Night Away, kind of. You know, um, a little bit more like Little Richard, you know, who was, mm-hmm. I think, at the at Keen Records with him at one point in time. People back then wanted him to write more like Little Richard. He didn't. But he, this shows he could. He could write anything he wanted, really. And, uh, you know, Sam being a womanizer, a skirt chaser, really, if you want to be <laughs> unkind about it, right, Ryan? He was good with the ladies. This makes sense that he would write a song like this, if you think about it, because he's, he's out of his uh, local you know, um, stomping grounds. He's in London and, you know, things are different over there. You can't just go out and meet the ladies like you want, you, you could back, you know, where he was from in Detroit. So, you know, I, you know, this speaks to one part of his life that that's, uh, you know, obviously led to a lot of trouble, but also led to a lot of great songwriting. <laughs> so I love it. This is a great hit. All right. What do you got next? All right. My second uh, track is... A one that's obviously ubiquitous, people will know this all over, and that is Cupid. Cupid, draw back your bow and let your arrow go straight to my lover's heart for me. I've spoken at length during my origin with, you know, my love for Sam Cooke's music about, you know, this was the first Sam Cooke song I heard, you know, in the in, on the Inner Space soundtrack. Two great moments in the film when, you know, Dennis Quaid tries to 
to kind of win her back, win McRyan back. They have relationship troubles in the beginning of the movie, and he he plays their song, and you know he's trying to dance, slow dance with her on on Cupid, and then it, she's not having it, and then later on when he's you know attaching a sort of you know he's in her body. <laughs> You know, on the little <laughs> inner space vehicle, the microscopic uh, sub, and then he's attaching a cord to her ear and, you know, to her eardrum and then plays the music that way, you know, to, to make her realize that it's him, you know, that that's, that's, he's been, you know, microscopically shrunk to, you know, she, she wouldn't have any of it. She wouldn't believe it. And that's the way he convinces her. It just, it, it's, it's, uh, you know, very, very um, seminal. If I remember, you know, thinking about one of the moments of my childhood watching movies, I, I love that movie. You know, it gives, it gives you the feels, right, Ryan? So that's probably why this song is so near and dear to my heart. It's also one of the first songs I learned to play on guitar oh, <laughs> way nice. back when. My mom, you know, taught me the, the, the chords to this one. It's very simplistic chords. It's just got like three or four chords. But, you know, it's, it's a great song to, to play on the guitar, I think. And um, so um, just a sentimental favorite for, for me, particularly. Again, um, great lyrically, if you think about a, a bit of humor to the lyrics, you know, I'm not talking about any deep lyrics again here, just a, a bit of humor associated with these lyrics. Uh, so, you know, I think I can re-listen to this song over and over again. I never get tired of it. And in fact, you know, my, my little daughter, she's eight years old now. This is her favorite Sam Cooke song, oh, nice. you know, without, without me having to introduce it. You know, she she must have, you know, listened to it on her own. And then she said, oh, dad, could you add this to my Spotify playlist? <laughs> so oh, that's, that's again, speaks to, you know, how good of a songwriter he was and how he, yeah. you know, it's basically universal, right? Everybody could love this song. Right. This might have been the first Sam Cooke song that I heard or or at least like up there just just because I know that this song and the next one I'll talk about, What a Wonderful World, were both in like heavy rotation that my dad would play a lot. And maybe they were just right. like, front-loaded on his mixes or something like that. Um, mm. And it might have been because of their, their connection to soundtracks and, and, and movies and stuff that we'll, we'll kind of get into like around that era. Um, so definitely being played up again, that might have had something to do with it. But I mm. this was like a song that I just... This is like the, one of those prototypical ones. This was always there, like at the dawn of creation for me. Cupid yeah. was just like always there in the background. And it just mm. feels like this quintessential piece of pop music Americana from like the 50s and, and 60s. It was, it was released in 61. Um, as, as, I, uh, disco- as I was reading up on it, it was – he actually wrote it with the intention of for a female singer – um, but the record yeah. company just didn't right, like yeah. whatever the recording was, or, or they they got a kind of a bad vibe from the singer, maybe that they they had signed, and they were just like, you know what, Sam, just keep it, do do do, mm. yeah, keep the song yourself, you, do you your thing. <laughs> um, and he did. Um, one of the things I like about it, is it, it, it sort of demonstrates that. You know, I mean, he he could play guitar. He played piano. He wrote uh, he wrote a lot of the music, but he wasn't you know in charge of the the production as much. But he knew exactly what he wanted to hear. So he would coach his producers and the engineers and everybody to give them to get as much as he could. And and you really kind of if you hear more like he he was learning more about that because by the end before he died when he was uh, sort of going to change into like a, a new mm. a new contract he really wanted 
wanted universal control over all of the recording aspects of yeah. of his songs. But he knew what he wanted to hear. He could hear the song like almost fully formed before he recorded it. And it was his idea yeah. to kind of have this like bowstring like shoot like sound effect, effect kind yeah. of just like in the background <laughs> of this of this song. So yeah, yeah, that's that's a great bit. Yeah, no, he like you say, he was a producer, um, or he was a budding producer um, who eventually lobbied for more control yep. over his own songs, and he got, he got it, you know, at the end of his life. I mean, you kind of have to. This kind of song, you know, wasn't even a hit in 1961. I mean, it, it was a hit, uh, you know, but not on on you send me's, um, you know, level. Uh, I think it only charted to number 17, right, right, right on the Billboard. Hot 100 charts, but now it's considered a classic, uh, an oldie, a golden oldie, and a classic. And um, it's almost played more than You Send Me or some of his other hits. I, I think that most people now who get into Sand Cook might associate him with this song, you know, more than some of his other hits because of just the, the, the sheer volume of, of plays that this thing has had. Even here in Taipei, they play it regularly on, on the radio stations here still. So that 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 shows you how something could become a, a, a classic. It was a hit back then, but now it's 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 transcended that. So definitely a song worthy of, like you say, it's it's ubiquitous. It's always in the background of every era after Sam Cooke. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's probably hopefully going to stay that way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. The next song on my list is "Wonderful World." Don't know much about history. Don't know much biology Don't know much about a science book Don't know much about the French I took But I do know that I love you And I know that if you love me too What a wonderful world this would be All right, this one also sometimes called What a Wonderful World with parentheses around a what a uh, released in 1960, the lyrics for this song were originally conceived by Lou Adler and Herb Albert. Uh, this was a writing team that worked with Sam Cooke a lot, um, and he kind of he took what they had, like their first draft, sort of, and, and he heavily kind of rewrote it, playing up this kind of educational motif, this idea of knowledge and wisdom. Um, mm. The songwriting credit was actually given to Barbara Campbell who doesn't actually exist. Uh, that was just a uh, pseudonym for the three of them. Um, they, yeah. they did this a couple times. I'm not sure why they came up with a pseudonym, but it was the three of them who wrote the song together. The music for this one was arranged by Belford Hendricks, who did a lot of Sam's top hits, like You Send Me, Chain Gang, Cupid, uh, Change Is Gonna Come, etc., some of the other songs. And as we talked about Cupid appearing in uh, Inner Space, this song is really made famous by its inclusion in the movie Animal House when John Belushi yeah. is going through the cafeteria <laughs> line, uh, which will end up leading to a famous food fight in the thing. This is the song I was mentioning, like, along with Cupid, were just these quintessential oldies, feel-good, wide-eyed, innocent-in-love tracks that I just associate with that era of 50s and 60s, pre-psychedelic rock. They're just, like, the yeah. staples of that. Um, and it's, it's such a weird thing, but... Like this was this hearing this song at a young age. This was probably the first time I heard names of these courses like biology, trigonometry, yeah. geography. I don't think <laughs> I knew that I, I like I, from context clues. I could figure out that they were 
educational courses that they were fields of study, but I don't think I knew what trigonometry was. <laughs> no way. <laughs> I, I couldn't have told you. Um, but it's just, uh, again, it's kind of the, like this clever play on, you know, using all of these motifs, these different course names with these long Latin names and everything. But when it comes down to love, it's just a simple formula. One and one makes two. And if this one mm. could be with you, what a wonderful world this could be. It's just, I, I just, yeah. I love it. Like he, and he really, you know, when he, when he rewrote the draft, he played up like front load it with all of these like courses and, and, you know, heavy things. <laughs> yeah. But at the end of the day, no, it's just a simple love equation. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great, um, you know, a little lyric play on words, you know, and also comparing the fact that you don't need an education mm-hmm. to understand love. And, uh, you know, um, again, like we were probably going to mention a couple more times, uh, nothing too deep about it, but if you think about it in in terms of a, a love song's lyrics, it's pretty damn you know uh, smart and it's pretty deep, especially for a wider audience. If you want to include everybody from the most erudite listener to to even kids, they might you know get to love the song. Even though, like you mentioned, there's even the educational element where the kid might think, "Hey, let's find out what trigonometry is," <laughs> and then they instantly regret it once they learn what it really is. But yeah, man, I agree with you. It's um, uh, like it, like you said, it all comes down to this equation, and um, you know, it's the simplest of equations that even you know, the 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 the, the silliest of, of people could make, and um, uh, you know, again, uh, proves that uh, Sam has this ability to write songs that other artists later on will will make great, right, Ryan? Because for me, I first heard the song sung by my namesake's man, <laughs> Herman's Hermits. Yes, That's the way yeah. You know, I heard this song for the first time, and then I also later on discovered it's a Sam Cooke song. I, I had already liked the song, you know, from from the Herman's Hermits version. So, you know, um, if you can take an artist and you can, you know, he, he's written so many songs, and you can make cover versions of his songs that go that become hits. Um, obviously, the, 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 he's a great songwriter uh, because of that. But like you say, he co-wrote the song. Still, you know, there's a lot of Cook in there. Um, and uh, one of my most cherished childhood songs, I would think, obviously because of the Herman's Hermit angle, <laughs> not that I was a fan of their catalog, but, you know, people sort of said, hey, so, you know, why don't you listen to Herman's Hermits? I mean, you're called <laughs> Herman. So I would say, OK, I already like oldies. I'll give them a go. But, um, yeah, a great song, great little um, a lyric uh, play on words there. And um, one of my favorites, too. Yeah. Good pick. All right, uh, the next one on my list is Only Sixteen. She was only sixteen, only sixteen. I loved her so, but she was too young to fall in love. And I was too young to know. We'd laugh and we'd sing and do the little things. That made my heart glow But she was too young To fall in love And I was too young To know This might be a a little bit of a strange one I wouldn't say it's one of his Most well-known songs But it's definitely one that you always see on Most of his greatest hits compilations And the reason I picked it is because um, It's actually not my favorite song of his. It, it, again, it's a love song. It's it's got these simplistic lyrics. It's my sister's favorite song. Mm. And um, you know, when we kind of, you know, I mean, we're there's four years between us. She's younger, 
But, um, you know, she was more of my mom's disciple, if you know what I mean, right? Sure. right? And she was more of my mom, you know, she, my mom coached her in piano and stuff like that. And um, she she stuck with it, whereas I never did. And then, you know, she, um, even though my mom and my sister don't get along, they got along musically, you know, they share a lot of the same tastes. So I remember my sister playing this one on piano a lot, you know, um, uh, only 16. And um, I, I, I'm not saying that's why I like it. It's just, it's, it's again, it's like a, got a sentimental um, uh, connection in my mind. And uh, that's why I picked this one. It's um, originally, uh, if you look at the history of the song, it was written, I think, I mean, this is done on the research that I've done. It was written for uh, Steve Rowland, who was an actor at the time. And he was apparently hanging around Keen Studios a lot. So, so this was one of um, Sam Cooke's earlier hits, I would say, like probably just after You Send Me. So we're talking about my, maybe 1959 here. Yep. And uh, then again, uh, it didn't work out like we discussed with, with the earlier song. And, you know, Steve Rowland didn't end up recording it. Cook did. And um, it, it was a semi-hit. It, it never did super well, but but people definitely remembered him. Like right after You Send Me, this was the, the next hit that Cook had. So um, uh, catchy little tune, I would say. Um, it's a little bit uh, disturbing if you think that the song was inspired by the 16th birthday of Lou Rawls's stepsister. Yep. You know, so um, now I'm not saying Cook had a thing for her. I'm just saying that okay, he might have you know put himself into the position of a guy, a, a, a young teenager courting her. Right. You know, but um, you know, then then that would be okay. But you know, that's why I'm saying it's a little bit it's a little bit suspicious knowing what Cook was like. You know, mm-hmm. that that he had this uh, tremendous libido mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, I don't know. Things were different back then, right? So I'm not, uh, but I'm not going to look at that. I'm going to look at the song itself. And if this is a teenage boy writing the song for his teenage love, it's a pretty sweet song and um, a very catchy tune as well. Um, and um, definitely, you know, just every time I hear it and I think about it, I remember my sister playing this one on the piano. So it's got some some uh, bittersweet memories for me of, of, you know, my childhood. What do you think about this little tune? I, I like it. I mean, it's... Uh... It's hard to separate yourself from a modern, you know, 21st century, 2021, like, lens and, like, view where we're sort of so conditioned to find controversy in things and subject matter. Mm. And when Mm. you have the song Only 16 and he's talking about how young the girl is and it's like, okay, who, who is, who is, who is the, the, the singer of the song? Is it Sam or is it a, a character? And you have to kind of really yeah. listen to, she was too young to fall in love and I was too young to know. It's like, okay, this it's, isn't ooh, a, yeah. 30, a 30 year old man <laughs> courting a, a, a woman half his age or something like that. You know, I, I do think, I do think it was much, I, I think his intentions were much more. You know, I want to I want to say grooming, but even that has a really kind of bad connotation nowadays yeah. too. When it comes to artists and their fans, so I I do not think he had sinister, malicious, or even sexual intentions. Um, I, I I think it was, it was being more just kind of playful and thinking about young love. Yeah, I mean, there was a couple of songs back then that were written like this. I mean. Um, Gary Plunkett, they wrote a song called Young Girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that one has got a very catchy tune for the 60s. Yeah, but yeah. nowadays, if you listen to it, you, you realize that, holy moly, that song right, should right. not be – they should change the lyrics to that song at least. Right, but, right. you um, know, it was a different time. It, it was a different time, and the expectations for a girl or a lady, what was – yeah, it, 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 
best case scenario it's is a product of its time um yeah but it's wrong like you say i mean right. but obviously we can't we we can't you right. know pretend to know what sam was was thinking about when he was yeah. writing these lyrics but the fact that it's well known that he wrote it as a mm-hmm. gift or you know yeah. um yeah. uh to the to lou rolls's stepdaughter i mean that that tells me that he wouldn't have you know, made that public if there was sinister intent. But, right, right. you know, but, you know, there's the song itself, though, if you look at it, like I said, from the perspective of just a, a, a let's say an 18 year old boy, you know, a high school senior falling in love with a 16 year old, that's, you know, understandable that that's happened to a lot of us. So, yeah, I mean, um, but but a very catchy little tune, I think, um, um, easy to play, according to my sister, at least easy to play on the piano. A lot of Sam Cooke songs are, but you know, uh, once you listen to the, re- the 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 actual products, the recordings in the studio, it's it's very intricate. Uh, you know, all the the um, uh, instruments they brought to bear and the production value of the song is pretty high for mm-hmm. such a you know for a song in 1959. Yeah. So I thought I'd include that just to say uh, give a shout out to my sister who's definitely going to listen to the show. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, awesome. Um, yeah, and Lou Rawls, who went on to have his own very successful career in, in music and mm. in entertainment also. Um, but at this point in time, he was kind of like a, a protege of, of Sam Cooke, who was just yeah. bringing him in. And, and Lou Rawls ends up singing backup vocals on, on one of the songs that we'll talk about later, too. So Yeah, that's right. All right, moving on to uh, our next song. We've been talking about a lot of Sam Cooke's chart-topping hits, and I really wanted to include uh, at least one deep cut. Uh, and I think I think you've got one too later on, um, but this one was not a single, not a chart topper, um, but it is probably now my second favorite Sam Cooke song, and this one is called "Get Yourself Another Fool." Oh, at last I've awakened to see what you've done. What can I do But pack up and run Now I know the rules Get yourself another fool You say that you love me I was yours to command But your kind of love My heart couldn't stand You used me for a tool Get yourself another fool This was recorded by Sam on his 1963 album, Night Beat. Uh, it is the last track on side A of the album. Uh, the song was actually written by Frank Haywood and originally recorded by the Charles Brown Trio in 1949. So not a Sam Cooke original this time. Uh, this song has also been covered by Elvis Costello in the 80s and Paul McCartney in the 2000s. But... I think the first version that I heard was by Arthur Conley, who recorded it just a few years after Sam Cooke in 1968. Conley's version was the one that I knew, and I really liked it. I thought it was a pretty song. Then I heard the Cooke version, and it floored me. 
It's such a beautiful song. It is stripped down. Sam only played with four or five musicians on each song of the album, uh, so it's really it has more of an intimate feel. Uh, it's really driven by the piano uh, with a guitar and an organ just behind it. I I see him singing this song in a small little jazz club or a smoke-filled bar. Uh, he's under the spotlight. The rest of the band is just in shadow. And you're just sitting at the bar, listening, reflecting on all the things mm. you do at that moment. But it's it's one of those things where it's just like the the moment, whatever is going on in your life or something, it's just kind of like hanging in the air as the song is going along. Um, ah, gosh, yeah, I just I love this song. I love his performance. This is my second favorite Sam Cooke song. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the song as well. I like you. I also listen to the Arthur Conley version, which is probably I don't know why that that one was you know playing all over you know in our on our oldie stations and stuff in the in the 1980s and 1990s um, for some reason. Um, and when I heard the Sam Cooke version, I was completely blown away. It, it's so so superior to the Arthur Conley version, even though the Conley version's great. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Sam was. Well, he wasn't the original uh, person who, like you say, wasn't the the songwriter, but his rendition of it was perfect. I mean, you can't you can't get better than that. And you know, it also reminds me of these smoky kind of Nina Simone nightclub yeah, kind of uh, yeah. feeling. You know, like you mentioned it, uh, you you mentioned the bars, um, and uh, it it yeah, it kind of takes you back, like makes you also think about movie scenes. Even though this movie wasn't featured, or the song wasn't featured in a movie that I would recall, it, it immediately is a very visual song in terms of uh, creating a setting and a mood. Mm-hmm. So uh, just because it's so evocative of that, I would say this is definitely one of my favorites as well. Um, normally, I tend to pick the Sam Cooke favorites if he wrote and sang the song, but you know this one is the exception to the rule because. Um, he was so great. I mean, even his his version of Tammy, you know, the famous hit from the fifties, Tammy, mm-hmm. is is better than the original, <laughs> you know, um, product. So this this is just showing how great he was vocally and um, how how he could put his own spin on things that basically needed the Sam Cooke spin. Everything needs the Sam Cooke spin if yeah. you think about it. If you look at this song as as an example. So yeah, Ryan, great pick. I was so glad you picked this one. I was going to pick it, but I thought I'd give our listeners more of a greatest hits. You were more (laughs) going more for the deep end and I'm glad you did. Yeah. All right. What's next? All right. Next song on my list is another, um, favorite. It's hard for me, you know, to say, you know, I'm going to contradict myself later because there's so many songs that I would consider a favorite but this one definitely is one of those songs that I can re-listen to much like Cupid over and over again and that is Twisting the Night Away Let me tell you about a place Somewhere up a New York way Where the people are so gay Twisting the night away Here they have a lot of fun Putting trouble on the run Man, you find the old and young Twisting the night away They're twisting, twisting Everybody's feeling great They're twisting, twisting They're twisting the night away I've mentioned this before, Ryan. Listeners won't... I'm, I'm, I'm beating this horse to death here, but... Uh, again, the reason why I like this song is because of the inner space, you know, moment where they dance to it <laughs> together. I mean, there's this great scene where uh, Quaid 
you know, he uh, ex- he asks uh, Martin Short to take a swig of of uh, whiskey, <laughs> and, you know, because they want to party and they want to drown their sorrow. So he's inside Short's body. He extends this little, you know, ap- he opens this aperture in his microscopic ship and he reaches out with his clawed hand with a flask. And while Short is, is chugging down this whiskey, he catches the whiskey in this flask, you know, while he's inside the, 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 the submarine. And then um, they get drunk together, <laughs> you know, and then uh, Martin, they, they, well, Quaid's character plays Twisting the Night Away um, on the speakers, the inner speakers inside, you know, Short's head. And then Short, you know, just rocks out to this tune. <laughs> so it's a great little scene. But for me, this this is one of those, like, if you listen to a Sam Cooke Greatest Hits album, this is one of those songs where you, you've, you've kind of, it, I'm not going to say you've had enough of the, the slow lyrical battle, ballads, but you, you want to get to something more upbeat, then this suddenly hits you on the Greatest Hits album. You know, what, whichever one it might be, this one seems to be included on most of them. And then, you know, it immediately changes your mood and puts you in a bit of a, a, a party mood. And then, you know, possibly the next song will take you a bit, you know, down memory lane again. But this one definitely is there for kind of serves the same function as Another Saturday Night, where it's one of his more upbeat tracks. And it also was a huge hit because of that, because, um, you know, folks were were looking for something more more catchy more you know you know catering for the people who want to dance and stuff and and rush the stage <laughs> and this was definitely one of those songs from Sam that he delivered so you know um i i had to include this one if i didn't include this one i would browbeat myself later and and you know possibly be upset but you know um it was released in 1962 and it was i, I think it charted on the R&B charts at number 1 and the Billboard Hot 100 charts at number 9 so you know, unequivocally a success, a, a hit. And then, you know, later on, other people recorded it and, and did great versions of it. But again, Sam's version is the best, you know, and also the most well-known. Mm-hmm. So um, um, what do you think about this song, Ryan? I love the song. Uh, I, do, I don't really have anything mm. to add because it's just, it's a it's a great rock song. It's a great pop song. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like reminiscent of, Guys like, again, Little Richard. Uh, but I'm not saying Sam wrote these kind of tunes to to kowtow to public, you know, or, or to the record. The, at this point in time, he was already at RCA Records. Uh, he was very much his own man at this point in time. He didn't have to write songs like he did at Keen Records or, or record songs where they sort of dictated what he had to do. Mm-hmm. Here he was doing what he wanted and he, hey, felt like writing a rock and roll song and he did. Yeah. You know, because that was big at the time and it worked and it and, and proved that he could even score a hit in the rock genre, although probably they didn't define it back then as rock, you know, right. with this particular hit. But it, it is. And it, it can it's again a crossover song. It's soul, but it's rock mm-hmm. and it's yeah. pop and it's it's everything. So a great little tune. One of my favorites. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the only other thing I'll say is great as the song is and, and worthy of chart topping the way it did the live version. Hmm. <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to Sam Cook live a little bit later in this episode. Yeah. Whew. All um, right. Moving on. Um, the next song, um, probably his most famous song. I mean, maybe. I mean, it, you send me maybe. Um, but I think this is. I think this is widely considered to be his best song by a lot of music critics today. Um, in fact, this one was selected by the Library of Congress for special preservation because of its cultural significance. Of course, I'm talking about the song, A Change Is Gonna Come. I was born 
February 1964, um, and I note that in particular because that was a week or two before the uh, famous Cassius Clay Sonny Liston fight, which is part of the movie One Night in Miami. Um, and it's because this is where the, the timeline in the movie gets a little wonky because uh, there's a conflict between Sam and Malcolm X in the movie, um, where the the, the, I, the movie. God, I, I just I I want everybody who's listening to this to watch the movie right now, uh, Herman, you yourself included. Um, but yeah, man, I have the, to. The movie really talks a lot about black power and what black power means, and it means something different to each of the four characters. Whether it is a spiritual power, a political power, um, an economic power, as we see with people like Sam and Jim Brown. You know, Jim Brown, who is this Hall of Fame, you know, football player, but mm. his body is breaking down, and he's get, he said he's getting tired of scoring touchdowns. He really wants something else, so he starts breaking into acting, where he can have more control. Sam, you know, has not only you know started breaking into the mainstream, you know, success and audience, but now Sam is cultivating his own crop of artists underneath him, and he is forming contracts where he and his young black protégés are getting songwriting credits for the Rolling Stones number one hits. So he, he actually makes the point, he's like, I got those like those white boys from England working for me. You know, they don't even realize when their you know, song goes number one, that's money in my pocket, and that's mm. money in Bobby Womack's pocket, because he wrote the song or something like that. Mm. Um, and there's this conflict between him and Malcolm X, because Malcolm X puts on the Bob Dylan song, Blowing in the Wind. He's like, you, he's like how come this song is better or, or has, charted to, or is, is, um, has been more successful than any song you've ever written, Sam? And when a little white boy from Minnesota can write along, how many roads must a man walk down before you can call him a man? And he's talking mm-hmm. about this, the, the struggle of racism and the civil rights movement and all those things. And Malcolm X really challenges Sam to, to take an active part in this. And by the mm-hmm. end of the movie, you sort of see Sam talks about how he has been working on something and he's, he's going to kind of come up with a change that's going to come. Well, in reality, Sam had already written the song. He had already recorded the song before that event. Um, but it is, it, it is true that Sam had like confirmed that 
he was pissed off that basically Bob Dylan wrote the song he wanted to write before him. <laughs> and he was mad yeah. that a white guy with no skin in the game for civil rights and, and the black struggle could write a lyric like that. Like, how many roads must a man walk down before you can call him a man? And Sam was jealous, so he started writing his own civil rights protest song that became, mm. and this was also, the song is partially inspired by events in 1963 when Sam booked this hotel in Louisiana. When they arrived, the manager refused to admit them because it was whites only, uh, so they, mm. they said there were no vacancies. Sam and his either his girlfriend or his wife at the time caused this commotion as they drove off. They were later arrested because of it um, for causing you know a public disturbance. So Sam had these ideas and he he start, he channels them into this song and apparently he's he only played the song one time live uh when he appeared on the tonight show with johnny carson and allegedly it was um his agent alan klein who really wanted him to perform that song sam didn't want to because it was brand new he hadn't really practiced it with the the new arrangement or anything like that mm. but because of the events, the way it worked out, he only played the song the one time, and then he would end up dying by the end of that year um, after the album came out. The, the song appeared on the album, Ain't That Good News. Um, yeah. And then it was released as a single posthumously. Like, they were prepping it for a single release, and they were going to get this major push when he dies in December. Um, and it's also famous, kind of notable, that the record company censored one whole verse uh, in the song for radio play, because there's a, 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 a verse in it where it says, I go to the movies and I go downtown. Somebody keep telling me, don't hang around. He's specifically talking mm. about Jim Crow segregation in there. And yeah. RCA didn't like that, and they cut that verse from the radio version. Yeah. Um, other little notes, um, the night that Barack Obama won the presidential election in 2008, he paraphrased the, the song uh, for mm. when he gave a speech to his supporters in Chicago. This, what a sort of the, the, the bigger thing about this is what this song sort of portended and the kind of tragedy of his early death is, is this the direction that Sam Cooke was going? Was he kind of getting bored and tired of, I mean, you can only write, you know, so many just, you know, kid cutesy love songs that he had been doing and he had mastered that so mm. well. Now, is he starting to look at the civil rights movement? Is he going, going to start taking a more active role? Is he going to start making more songs like A Change Is Going To Come? There's some, you know, speculation is that he wrote the song, kind of got it out of his system, but he was really reluctant. He didn't want to tarnish his image. He didn't want to piss off the whites, so he kind of, he didn't want to release it as a single until after he was dead. There's other thoughts that, no, this is the direction that he wanted to go. This was what he was pushing for, and it was the record label that wasn't comfortable with this, because they're like, we make a lot of money presenting you as this wholesome white friendly white appealing you know singer don't yeah. screw it up <laughs> don't don't you know don't queer our hustle and, and ruin all our, our, our money and everything like that so that's one of those things yeah. where it depends on wh whose side you're listening to um it, you know was this a one-off thing that sam just wrote almost as a challenge and he he would have gone back to playing the same more milk toast but really really good you know love songs or was this just a specter of what might have come if he had survived yeah <clears throat> yeah well um yeah to interject there ryan i would agree with you on on all of those points of course how could i not it's just um 
you know, uh, since it, uh, Sam Cook, one, one thing we have to let the listeners know that we didn't mention before this is, uh, you know, he didn't really um, come to the civil rights movement later on. I mean, he was already refusing to play to segregated audiences in the 50s, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in 1957 even. So he, he was already socially conscious then. Um, that's why people call him an early pioneer, not just because of what he did in his early 60s and, and specifically this song being the culmination of his contribution to the civil rights movement. Or maybe that's unfair. I mean, he's, he's had many other contributions to the civil rights movement, just the inspiration level alone. But um, what, what you're saying is if he had survived, you know, past his death, um, if, if past the age that he was at, it, at, it, at the point of his death, he would have, I'm sure, gone on to write some more you know, uh, protest songs, if you can call them like that, or or songs that just, um, you know, speak to more uh, deeper issues and, um, you know, about the black community. Because I think he was galvanized by that, you know, Shreveport incident in Louisiana that you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, he it, it made him remember what, what he was like initially when he crossed over from gospel music, um, you know, in the early uh, um, or in the late 50s. It made him remember that, you know, his, his strong feelings on this subject of segregation. And, and after that, many times he exhibited um, resistance to the way things were done. You know, I think even at the Copacabana, you know, where he was playing, uh, there was some, you know, he had to play to a predominantly older white audience. And he was always protesting the fact that they were, you know, putting up white acts before him and yep. um, or giving them more, you know, say in how they would perform. And uh, they he just let had his band to, like, on the stage with him. Yeah. Oh, oh, seriously. Oh, man, yeah. I didn't even know that. But, you know, I know that he was definitely having, you know, coming to blows with them, uh, figuratively speaking. So, you know, he was always like this. And the fact that he met up then once he became famous with people like Cassius Clay and, and Malcolm X and Jim Brown um, and that they made a whole movie about it, that's just one of the many things he's, he's done to create this social consciousness uh, among young black folk and even the older community, of course, because, I mean, his dad, even being a, a, a minister, a, a pastor, even sanctioned his music career into, into um, you know, pop or into, you know, more secular music um, because he knew that, that Sam had something to say and he had this talent. So, you know, I'm thinking that it's it's greater than than his religious roots. It's greater than, you know, his, his love of making money. It's greater than his womanizing. This was what he eventually would morph into, I think. And uh, it's sad that, you know, that was cut short. So that's just my opinion. I think he would have gone on to write many more songs like this. Yeah. Yeah, we, and we've sort of danced around the, sort of the, the tragedy of his death, um, but I did, I, I figure we can talk about it now. I, I think, uh, well, it, no, it was it was kind of it was controversial at the time. But there's the sort of officially known story, which is he was out at a bar, he was with his friends, and he picked up a woman who was later confirmed to be uh, um, a prostitute. Um, mm. And the the official story was that he took her back to her hotel. She at some point ran out of the hotel room when he was in the bathroom, and apparently she took all of her clothes. She later claimed that he was getting violent or abusive, and she felt like he was going to rape her. So in panic, mm. when he was in the bathroom, she ran out of the room, took all of her clothes, and possibly like took his pants too with his wallet. Like just she just grabbed all of everything like a, in like a bundle and ran out of there. Mm. Mm. So Sam leaves the hotel room 
half naked or wearing a jacket or something like that looking for her. He thinks that she went down to the motel office. So he starts banging on the door. At this point, he is mad if he thinks that this that he just picked up a prostitute who robbed him. He's probably very, very drunk. Possibly some other things. Anyway, he's banging on the door of this hotel manager. The like basically kicks the door in, and the the hotel manager hears him screaming about the woman, asking where's his money. She freaks out, shoots him dead, and uh-huh. uh, allegedly, which I always it's it's a horror, it's a tragedy that he dies. But I've always kind of been amused by the fact that his last his dying words on record are, "Lady, you shot me." I just yeah. think that's kind of funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, shame. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that was the officially told, you know, the, the story of his death. Uh, big time celebrity gets a little bit crazy with his money, possibly drinking drugs, tries to take advantage of a woman. He was a known womanizer, even though he had been married a couple of times. Maybe he went across the line, was going to rape this girl. She freaks out. He gets hot and bothered, screams at the wrong woman, and he gets shot for it. Horrible. However, other people in his family, his friends, his associates don't believe that's the full story. For one thing, they don't think it was ever really investigated by the police because – because the police were racist at the time in, the, in, the, yeah. in this community. They were yeah. just like, they, they didn't investigate. It was just another, you know, young black man killed and, and the police don't care. Um, there is also some speculation of like whether like this, this whole thing was a setup that the woman like went there with the intention of robbing him, that she stole his, uh, that she stole his wallet and like threw it out and that the woman running this hotel was kind of like a matron that this was like a scam that they had been running mm. in long term. There were yeah. other, these other things. There's also a lot of theories, and now we kind of get into conspiracy theories, which seem like okay, are are they, are people just really reaching for this? But it's not so inconceivable when you look at the way racial justice and racial politics have played out in the future. There mm. is a lot of speculation that the FBI started to follow and started to look at, more closely at Sam Cooke because of his association with Malcolm X and Cassius mm. Clay, especially when just earlier that year Cassius becomes Muhammad Ali. And Sam, even though nobody thinks he really ever had any intention of joining the, Mus- the Muslim Brotherhood or the Nation of Islam, just mm. because he's associated with them and there's this new idea of black power and possible militancy he becomes more of a target and also because as we've been saying he's forming his own record company with his own label his own publishing imprint he is now a threat to the white record company studio system that has always been there Mm. And a lot of people are thinking the same cook. He was just getting too big, and he was a he was a threat to powerful white people, and they set him up to get killed. Is that true? There's no way of proving it. There's no way to disprove it. Uh, it's, yeah. It would not be the first time that happened if it did. Um, mm. But that's kind of the way it is. There's also there's other theories in this. Actually, if you watch the the documentary special on Netflix that I mentioned, which again is called "The Two Deaths of Sam Cooke," um, there's even speculation that maybe, possibly, his manager Alan Klein was had some involvement in this because Sam was going to fire him because he thought Sam, Alan Klein was stealing from him or something like that. I don't I don't know about that. Um, yeah, there's even mob rumors. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's, 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 there's so. that he was involved in the mob. Yeah, 
Yeah. So, I mean, but, but like you said, Ryan, it, it's hard to corroborate any of this um, because uh, it's way after the fact. And if any investigation had to be done, it, it should have been done at the time when, you know, the you know evidence was still available. Now it's too late. But, you know, looking at it objectively from now, uh, from, from, you know, with hindsight, I'm saying that this, it definitely did not play out the way those two people were, you know, um, responsible for his uh, death said it did. You know, because uh, what happened to them afterwards proved that this was a scam that they ran, you know, with with Johns uh, and they they did have prior association with each other, even though during the time they claimed they didn't know each other, you know, the, the prostitute and the, the, the madam who ran the hotel. So, you know, all of these things add up to something that that definitely proves that it didn't go down the way that the official report said it did. So, you know, I think if the police had done their job, they would have known they they would have known that and investigated further. But like you say, they did not. So now the question is, what was their intent with that? Was were were they just throwing out the case or not throwing out the case? But were they just like, you know, um, you know, lackadaisically looking at this case because it involved a black man or were they were, were there deeper intentions, you know, like you say, perpetrated by someone higher in authority? You know, we, we, those things are mere speculation. We don't know. But I'm, you know, since I'm not, I hate conspiracy theories, but in this case, wow, there's some strong evidence to support that there was a conspiracy. But um, it might have just been, you're just a prostitute wanting to scam a guy out of his money and then, you know, um, the matron defending her and shooting him dead. That, that might have been the most, the easiest explanation. So, after, but very sad. After we went through an entire summer of, you know, Black Lives Matter and the movements for racial justice and just seeing the sort of culmination of what's been going on over, I mean, it's been a long time, but particularly like the last five years um, Mm. with police shootings of of Mm. black men, women, children, even, it's hard not to think... Conspiracy (laughs) theory, but maybe it's 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 hard not to think. Okay, I've I've seen this story before, so yeah. See, the thing is, though, if you sorry to interject with another thing, if you compare this to guys like Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali, he didn't necessarily play it safe, but he was constantly surrounded by his his team. You know, his 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 family, friends, and team. So it was hard to separate him from the pack, if you know mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. Uh, he would arguably have even been a bigger target than, than Sam Cooke mm-hmm. if these authorities, which is very possible if they did target these people in early on when they started the, you know, um, the civil rights, uh, you know, push. And I think Sam Cooke was, was very easy to, to target because of the lifestyle he lived. Right. You know, he was constantly philandering he was, um, you know, um, uh, running around town. Nobody knew exactly where he was. He would turn up a few days later, you know, um, after having a tryst with someone. And it, it, if you think about it, it's very easy for them to have done targeted Sam Cook to set this whole thing up and make it look bad to discredit him. And uh, his, you know, I, I, I think it looks like a like a, a, a wash job. I think it does, you know, Ryan, because it's just so. Obvious, if you look at all the facts now, and I'm talking here about facts, I'm not talking about speculation. The facts don't add up because they're, you know, even the witness testimonies are not consistent. So that already tells you, you know, and then of course the whole thing that you know he, he his family test for some of his family testified to him being followed, you know, um, that's that's possibly because of you know like you say the people in that time the authorities targeting folks associated with the movement. Right. So um, we know for a fact that happened with other people. Right. So, 
Well, it's uh, almost yeah, I mean, it, like Malcolm X. I mean, we're just talking. Yeah. I, I was just going to get to like my last point about the movie is the movie kind of foreshadows uh, Malcolm X's death and everything like that, and kind of like points to yeah. that that towards the end of the movie. But I was even kind of like thinking because I had to go back and look at the timeline. I'm like, actually, Sam Cooke was killed two months before Malcolm X was. So even though yeah. the movie kind of looks towards a brighter future for Sam and and uh, the the decline of Malcolm X, it's like actually. Malcolm outlived him by two months. Yeah. Well, I don't know because I haven't seen the movie, but, you know, I know about these facts in terms of, you know, just doing the research and uh, very suspicious, you know, because, um, yeah, that they both, you know, during that time uh, were, you know, myster- well, they died, you know. Right. So um, uh, is it suspicious? Yes. It's, it's very, <laughs> you must admit, two leading black figures in the community so soon, such a young age. But, you know, um, Ryan, you know, this song, uh, definitely the one, you know, uh, that we spoke about, I think um, it being what it is now. Um, so, like you say, it is his best song. It's not his most famous song, I think, but it's the one he's remembered for now, especially among the black community. But I think not his most commercially successful song, but it should have been, yeah. I think. I mean, because it is deep. You know, it is not it's not just written to, you know, appeal to everybody. This is definitely a song and it, and it, ha- it has to do with so much more than just the racial issue. It's also about, I think, Sam becoming almost dis- disillusioned with his religion, which is a white man's religion, which has sort of co-opted the black community into to using it. You know what I mean? Like um, because he sings at one point in time in the lyrics, there's there's a part where he says, I'm afraid to die because I don't know what's up there beyond the sky, mm-hmm. you know. And this is a weird statement from a from a pastor's son, right. you know, or a Baptist minister's son, because um, you, you'd think a gospel singer like Sam was, yeah, he might have been the bad boy of gospel and fallen out with that, you know, fan base when he crossed over to secular music. Music, but still, you know, he might retain this core of belief, which was probably due to indoctrination. But this shows me this song is about letting go of all these uh, trappings that, you know, the white culture has sort of um, used to provide a black identity for the, for the black people at this point in time, which is not their real identity. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is also a very personal song in terms of him, I think, his spirituality. So, you know, the song can, can mean many things to many people. Uh, predominantly, it was a, a song for the civil rights movement, but it's, it's also more than that. So definitely, like you said, his best song. It's it's um, unequivocally his best. Yep. All right, we got a few more songs before we wrap this one up. So, what is next on our list? Okay, this uh, next song is another sentimental favorite. I um, included this because of a very silly reason, which we'll get to. <laughs> and the song is "Teenage Sonata." Oh. oh, oh, oh. Hold me while I sing to you My teenage sonata Of my love Eternally true It's written And filled with devotion From deep 
in my heart And with my teenage sonata Comes a prayer that we'll never part Alright, so this song was supposed to be a hit But it never quite caught on And um, uh, it, it, it's a catchy little song But, you know, if I look at it now Compared to his other songs It's definitely not a hit It's just a very, very silly little sweet song The reason I like this song is and I can't get this bit out of my head, is um, you, you have hints of this in his song, You Send Me. You know, if you think about guys like Michael Jackson, they've got their hee-hee and all of these little lyrical, you know, these these um, sounds associated with them as an artist. But Sam has got the best singing voice for singing the word whoa. <laughs> you know, so in You Send Me, you've got whoa. And in this one, it's the same. You know, he uses that same whoa. And he, in fact, uses it through other songs as well. So, you know, it's it's the, the case with, I don't know if you've ever had this, Ryan, but you, you like a song, but you don't like the whole song. You just like a part of the song, mm. you know, and this is definitely that case for me. This is one of Sam's songs, not my favorite, but this bit uh, of the song uh, where he sings uh, the bit, where it starts off with whoa, <laughs> yeah. and, and then it goes into the, the lyrics here, here in the moonlight. Yeah. And, you know, that immediately sets me in the mood for what he intended with the song. And and this is it doesn't have the problems of only sixteen where it gets to you know he's he's loving a teenage girl. This is him as a teenager, writing and singing a song to a teenage love because um, you know it's his teenage sonata. Um, so then we get to very simple lyrics, but very very heartfelt, very pure, and it's got a great delivery by Sam on all fronts. You know, but the main reason I wanted to include this was you know because this is one of the catchiest openings to a Sam Cooke song for me personally, just because of his distinctive rendering of a simple word like, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) I was so glad you picked this song. I was so glad you picked this song because I I never would have thought of it. Um, it's it's an easy one to forget because like I, I I almost consider this a deep cut. It was in fact a single. He released it, but it just it never yeah. turned it. Never it never went popular or anything like that. But it did get included as a bonus on like one of his singles collections. Yeah, um, that's right. yeah it's just it's a lovely song. Like I I don't have anything much more than that. But it's like I I, I this was a song that I kind of forgotten about until you you mentioned it, and I was like. Oh yeah, I like that. I like this song a lot. This is such a sweet little pretty song. Um, yeah, yeah, good, good, very there's, good pick. There's not a lot of information on it. That's the thing, you know. That's why it's no, like a I know, forgotten. I know it was it was written by somebody, Jeff Barry. Um, yeah. So it wasn't a Sam Cooke original, but I don't know if anybody else like it. Might have been. It might have just been one that was like recorded, like in or written for. Like the the studio RCA, and they just like had it in their vaults, and it was given to Sam Cooke to record. I don't know if anybody else ever did anything with it. Yeah, that's why there's no information really uh, freely available because it it wasn't a big chart topper. But if you listen to it, um, uh, which you can do any anywhere nowadays with iTunes and Spotify, you'll you'll find it on some of his greatest hits albums. Even I think there's at least two of his greatest hits albums in the last 20 years that have included the song. And you can understand why, because it is such a romantic little tune reminiscent of those days, just before like pre Beatles era, you know, before love songs had to be rock songs. Mm -hmm. This was one of those nice Nat King Cole kind of post Nat King Cole love songs and um, a really nice little tune 
associated with that era. I, I, I think, you know, it's, it's again, evocative of, yeah. of those little, you know, um, the, the early 60s before the Beatles dominated everything. So, uh, yeah, man, I'm so glad you like the song. I thought I didn't think you were going <laughs> to, you know, say that you actually like no, the song. But no, I'm, I'm, I was glad that you, you picked this one. Yeah. Oh, um, no, then I'm happy, man. Yeah. And the, like for anybody else, if you want to do, if you really like want to do more than a, more than a, a casual listen, if you want to do a deeper dive, especially now how easy it is with streaming services and everything. But, um, the man who invented soul, it was like a box set, might have been four or five discs when it was actually released, but now, I mean, now you just you find it on on any whatever streaming service or something like that. You can hear them all mm. or download them all, um, and it's got almost everything. I think pretty much. Wow. Yeah. I gotta including, get that. <laughs> including my next song, "Shake, Rattle, and Roll." Now I believe to my soul you were devil in nylon hose. Listen. So you a devil in nylon hose Oh, you won't do right to save your natural soul And all you want to do is Shake, rattle, and roll If you moan Shake, rattle, and roll With the feeling Shake, rattle, and roll Seem to like it Shake, rattle, and roll Every morning Alright, I am guessing that most of our listeners have heard the song, but possibly not this version. Uh, this was originally written by Jesse Stone in 1954 for the blues musician Big Joe Turner. However, as probably most people are familiar with the version by Bill Haley and his Comets. Uh, and I'm guessing that a lot of the Fire and Water audience wouldn't surprise me if you recognize the song from the ending credits of the movie Clue. That was the first time that I had heard the song. Sam Cooke's version is the last track on the album Night Beats. Uh, I, I, I really like the sound. He replaces the blues guitar, the, the saxophone that was in some of the other versions, with more of an up-tempo piano and organ. Um, it's, it's, to me, this sounds very similar to his song Having a Party. Um, and I just think, you know, I mean, this, this is a song that was done by, you know, Bill Haley. Like Elvis Presley did a version of this one, too. But I think... I think Sam's version, I, I, I like it the best. I think partly is, I think he has the best and the clearest vocal performance of any of the versions of this song, like even the more popular ones. Like when I hear Bill Haley, I can't understand half of what he's singing, but I can understand what Sam is singing because just <laughs> he had a better voice. It's, it's such a good voice. Um, so that was really just, I, I've always liked this song. And when I heard Sam Cooke's version, I was like, this is a better version. Why isn't this one as popular? So yeah, no, I I have to again. There's very little we can disagree on. It seems like Ryan with <laughs> Sam Cooke. I mean, listeners sometimes like a bit of you know back and forth, a bit of disagreements, but I can't seem to fault any of your picks here because you know I, I was I, lying. I actually hate Cupid. It's a stupid song. <laughs> oh damn! Oh man! Now you've 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 shot me in the heart with an arrow, but I'm dead <laughs> instead of in love. <laughs> no, dude. Um, uh, well, oh, you, you're always like, uh, you know, pushing the envelope, <laughs> but, um, you know, we, we, I feel like a lot of people on the fire and water network, they're trying to be, you know, and not, not, not trying to be, that's a, that's a mean thing to say, but like Rob and Shag, <laughs> they want to get that <laughs> dynamic going where it's like digging at each other. But yeah. 
it's hard for me because you know we're we're on the same page with most things horror comics and it seems musically as well if i've listened to all the previous songs uh shows on the fire and water records um you know show and this one was a great pick from you because i hate actually i mean it's a catchy tune but i i hate the the Haley version mm. um you know i i don't know why i just I I really don't know why, but then when I listened to the Sam Cooke version, version which was possibly within the last five years or so, I I, I you know came upon it. I I was like thinking at the time that I listened to it for the first time. I was thinking, man, the, he really redeemed the song. <laughs> and then of course I checked the timeline. I saw that Sam Cooke actually he did it first, right, Ryan? Yeah. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah. So that begs the question again, like what what you asked? How could this version have been superseded? <laughs> by by the more popular version, you know, which should never have been popular, you know, from the comments. It, it's just like it baffles me, like, um, you know, that that this brilliant piece of, uh, you know, a rendition of a song is out there, but that people glommed on to the other version. And, um, yeah, when you picked it, I kind of thought you were going to go in that direction because, you know, um, there's a lot of Sam Cooke hits that we've already done that were covered by other, other people. None of those hits were superior even though they were hits, you know, covered <laughs> by those other people, all the Sam Cooke ones are the best. <laughs> and, you know, so uh, obviously we're biased. This is, you know, completely subjective opinion. But for me and for my mom, who's got more mu- musical no- uh, know-how, it's a fact. <laughs> it's just, it's it's a fact. It's like evolution. <laughs> you know, like, the, you know, I just listen to the song, to the listeners out there, and there's the proof. Um, so yeah, but, but like you say, it's uh, much of it is because of Sam's voice. You know, he's got a beautiful voice. Even if you listen to his old, you know, uh, older albums in the late fifties, where he was still, you know, arguably still trying, you know, to to experiment with vocal ranges and stuff like that, you could hear that this guy has this prodigious talent, and his voice can literally make this song a better song than the than the hit that it became later. So. Um, uh, good on old Sam there, you know, so this, this multi-talented bastard makes me feel so envious, but, um, you know, again, uh, I was glad you picked this one because this speaks to, you know, the greatness of cook once again. All right. Bring us then to your last song on the list. Our, well, <laughs> kind of right. Yeah. Ryan. Oh, yeah. Our last song. Oh yeah. Um, my favorite, Sam Cooke's song, personal favorite, uh, and my, I, I also believe this is his best, even though uh, if I look at it argumentatively, his best would be a change is going to come as to, you know, what it implies and what it what it led to. This is the best one lyrically and musically and the performance, it, you know, the, the recording they did on this one too. Um, it, it's kind of in my mind there with John Lennon's, you know, live twist and shout version. You know, it's just like everything just came together and it just worked at that right point in time. It might not have been if they recorded a couple of hours later, it might not have been this great. And that is Bring It On Home To Me. If you ever change your mind about leaving, leaving me behind.
Now, uh, Ryan, I'm going to speak to how I first, uh, you know, got to this song. But, you know, I know this is your favorite, too. I I'm not wrong in saying that, right? I, I got kind of the, uh, you know, when we discussed this off mic a little bit or on Twitter. It this is your favorite, too, right? This is my favorite Sam Cooke song. And this is my favorite song, period. What? Oh, man, that's awesome. That's great. Okay, I, I you know, I don't have a favorite song of all time but you know this if i did have you know because i'm there's so many genres like running around in my head but this would be definitely my favorite soul song and my favorite song from the early 1960s so yeah we're 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 right there with each other so you know um this song though i even being a cook fan from the late 80s and then into the 1990s i don't know why this song wasn't on any of the cook cassettes that i bought And, um, you know, it took uh, one of my friends, uh, a girl uh, who I had this massive crush on, but it was never reciprocated. It took her to to introduce the song to me. So, again, a little bit of a sentimental, you know, historical aspect to why I like this song. But the fact that, you know, we've lost touch, but I still like this song in spite of the Of, of the origins of my liking of the song that shows to me that I wasn't just, you know, trying to <laughs> impress this girl by liking her music. This is an actual great song. So it's not because of that reason that I picked it. This is just the best Sam Cooke song ever. And, and, you know, Lou Rawls being on, on backing vocals, mm -hmm. his friend that sort of enhances this because um, you've got Sam's voice and Lou's blending together in this completely unique mixture. Uh, but it's still it's still so much cook, and yet it's a different kind of cook that you don't get on any of his other tracks. Even even the the the, the more upbeat stuff, even the the live versions. I mean, I mean the live versions of other songs. I mean, later we'll we'll discuss something uh, live related to this one. But you know, this is a totally unique endeavor from Sam, and it's uh, every time I hear it, it's it's such a powerful song. I just want to re-listen to it again and again. And then I want to re-listen re re to it, you know, while I'm sleeping. And then I want to put it on uh, on endless replay, you know, on Spotify. That's just what it leads to. So it's almost like I got to forcibly stop myself from li from listening to the song over and over again. And the the funniest thing about it, Ryan, is I don't actually know precisely why I like this song so much. This is one of those songs that just click. You know, they just you you hear it for the first time, like I did when that a friend of mine introduced it to me. And it immediately just created some chemical reaction or something in my brain or, or uh, that, that just allowed me to completely and utterly fall in love with the song. And, I mean, um, obviously, this is one of his RCA songs. So this was, you know, after the fact that he had already become massively famous. But, you know, it was at that point in time where, where folks were getting used to his hits and they were thinking, you know, okay, so, you know, when when is Sam going to have a misstep? And then this song came out. And because the recording session was so haphazard, apparently, according to, to everybody involved, they weren't really expecting this to be such a hit because they were just having fun with it. But that's possibly the reason why the song is so great, because during the recording session, it, they had a good time. Yeah. And what is soul all about? It's about making you have a good time. I mean, that's the ultimate message of soul for me, at least personally. It leaves you with a good feeling. And that's exactly what this song does. I mean... Again, it was a B-side. I think the other song was having a party. Yeah, it was. And it only peaked at number two on on the R&B side, the, the Billboard's R&B charts. 
Um, and then number 13 on the Billboard Hot 100. I can't believe that. I, why wasn't this song number one all across the board? Because it's that great a song. And it's just the Philistines test of time. listening to music in 1962 is why. <laughs> exactly, man. Yeah. I mean, we should have been there. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be calling up every radio station to request it. Yeah. Oh, man. I'm telling you. I, I mean, I don't want to upset Rob or anything, but, you know, this song is is greater than blowing in the wind it's greater than than anything that dylan could come up with and yet i love dylan <laughs> but this song is just you know it's got everything it's got 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 arguably well deeper lyrics than his normal lyrics usually have even though it's just about you know again it's a it's a love song but um uh, it's got all the cookisms it's got the great um you know delivery from cook uh, vocally and it's got um, great lyrics it's got a great you know arrangement when it comes to everybody they included on the recording track and it's got excellent backing vocals by lou rolls there's just no way that this well for, in my mind cannot be anybody's favorite sam cook song this has to be your favorite if if you if you get into cook and um yeah that sounds pretty uh, that sounds very autocratic of me but yeah i just believe that firmly <laughs> You know, and in fact, the people that I've browbeaten about this song—my sister, my mom—it's in fact become their favorite song too. <laughs> Except for my sister, still, you know, uh, riffing off of Only Sixteen, but they—they they agree with me, you know, that this song is definitely his best effort. So, Ryan, now I'm going to let you speak on it. This, this is your favorite song of all time. Lay it on us. I don't have much to add other than you. I mean, we were so on the same page because I don't have have much to add. Like, I I was thinking the same thing. I don't have a really deep personal explanation. Like, there wasn't some critical point in my life where the song changed me on some profound level. It's just a magical song. There's just something about it. And, And I think... They captured something when they're recording. As you said, yeah, this was a a B-side for having a party. They recorded both of the songs at the same time, the same studio session. A ton of people in the studio. Um, They had a a ton of people playing the instruments, but also just people in the room joking around, having a party, just doing this whole thing. And I think just something about the the ensemble, the energy in that place just infused something with us. And originally, there were a lot more background tracks. Like, you had, like, four or five people doing backup vocals on the song. Uh, And they just decided that didn't work. Just do it with one. And I love the fact that they just went with Lou Rawls, whose voice does not sound like Sam Cooke. So you get a really nice contrast with it. Because it doesn't necessarily... Like... It doesn't sound like Sam Cooke's other stuff. Like the the vocal track is distinctly different than all of his other songs because of that that singular that Lou Rawls contribution on this on this version of the song. Exactly. Um, yeah. But I think yeah, just like I, like he said, like he wanted that, this song to have more power. He wanted it to feel weightier and heavier, like his gospel stuff with the soul sitters. So even though it is a secular love song feels like it's more important it feels like it has god was in the room with him or something like that there's there's a metaphysical <laughs> component to the song and yeah that's how it hits me like again like i don't have like this like life changing thing about it but when i listen to this song it's it's what i talked about in my introduction it feels like whatever church is supposed to make you feel like it, it it lifts me up it inspires me it makes me physically move i have to stand up i have to 
dance rock. Like I, <laughs> I wanted this song to be my wedding song with Angela, and, and she said no. Wow. She's like, it's not Dude. a. Blood. She's like, it's a breakup song. I'm not gonna. This is gonna be our song. <laughs> okay, yeah, that that's sad that you couldn't have the song, but she was right, man. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I didn't, I, I didn't fight very hard for that one. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I threw it out there, and she's like, no. I was like, okay, I, I, yeah. Oh, that's great. That's but, cool, man. That's a great story. Yeah, yeah. but. The other, I mean, the the thing that you were mentioning before with the with the previous song was how lots of Sam Cooke songs have been covered. None of them have been surpassed. I, I would contend that this song has been covered possibly more than any of his others. I don't think any of them are better than his, but I also don't think there has been a bad cover of this song, at least none that mm. I have heard. And this one has been covered by the animals who i think do the second best version of the song and they did theirs right away in 1965 just just a few years mm. after his i love the animals version too um yeah has a, has slightly more of a you know proto psychedelic rock sound to it um if you go on youtube there's a i don't know if the concert was from i think it was i think it was from the 90s could have been earlier in like the 80s um but you can hear um eric burden the guy the lead singer of the animals do a live version of the song it's a great great live version um it's also been covered by rod stewart percy sledge van morrison otis redding mandy moore uh martina mcbride it was in the, the soundtrack for the movie the commitments it is just it's it's a phenomenal track phenomenal song it, it's yeah. cannot be cannot be beaten except the only person who could do a better version of sam cook's bring it on home to me is sam cook that's right <laughs> and and that brings us to our bonus song selection at the end of this um because when I first, when this song hit me and it became my favorite, I started looking up all these other cover versions because I just, I couldn't get enough of it. I had to hear every version. And I found out that he did a live version of this song from this famous album called Live at the Harlem Square Club. Uh, so folks, I'm going to play for you part of the song, Bring It On Home to Me, live. I gotta tell you this, baby, don't you know that I'm mad? Ha, 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 when you from, again, a live album called Live at the Harlem Square Club, 1963. Uh, This was recorded at a concert in Miami, January 1963. The record label immediately decided not to release it after the show. Uh, They thought the show was just too raw. The crowd was too loud, too bombastic. The energy was too black <laughs> or too urban <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. for Sam Cooke's reputation. I mean, th- this really demonstrates how good he was at what what they call today code switching between a black audience and a white audience because of the way he could mm. present himself when he was playing at the Copa 
or when he was mm. on, you know, the, uh, you know, Johnny Carson show or something like that, and he was doing all these solo yeah. shows, versus when he toured in his own neighborhood when he was playing to predominantly black audiences, and it was a completely different animal. Um, mm. It's just, it's, it's bombastic, it's raw, it's energetic, and the record company was like, "You're gonna scare our audiences." <laughs> they just. <laughs> They didn't want anything to do with it, so they sat on the record. It wasn't released until 1985, 21 years after his death. But when it came out, it was immediately beloved, considered one of the best live concert albums ever. It's on, you know, Rolling Stones list, every, every major music publication that had their list of best albums of all time. This one is somewhere on that list. Um, I don't know if I can call it my favorite album because live albums and compilations kind of make up a different category for me. Yeah. But it's one of, I, I feel like it is a perfect album. Start to finish, everything is brilliant. It's only 36 minutes long. Um, yeah. It's it just, he, he plays 10 of his songs and they're fast, they're fun. Like I said, like his, his version of Twist in the Night of Way, uh, Don't Fight It, Feel It right off the, the opening gate. The version of Chain Gang on this album is incredible. Um, but really, I mean, the culmination, uh, one of the last songs, when he does bring it on to me, I can't remember who said this, but somebody said, this is what, when, when Sam thought of soul music, this is what he thought of. This is what soul music is supposed to be. This experience when you listen to the live version of Bring It On Home to Me. And it's, and it's, it's a very different beat because he doesn't have Lou doing the backup vocals. It's just Sam singing. So it sounds very mm. different. And, but it still accentuates what is great about him and the energy. He just, he doesn't stop. He like hits the ground running in that concert and just goes for a half an hour. It's wonderful. It's amazing. Um, you gotta listen to the whole thing. So, what, what, what do you think? I mean, I, I mentioned that I wanted to include this version and you got really excited. What do you think about this one? Yeah, I'm again <laughs> boring for the listeners, but it's the truth. Again, we're in total agreement here, Ryan. Like I, I, the experience that I had when I listened to this album for the first time, even after that, I've already like established, you know, what were my favorite Sam Cooke hits. This album was like a second epiphany, or like a second coming, <laughs> or you know, for me personally, it was like, how could an artist you already love and you've already listened to his greatest hits as they were recorded, how could you listen to something that's even better? <laughs> You know that—that's exactly how I felt. I was like, I mean, and this is this this. I listened to it at least. I'm not gonna lie to you. I listened to it at least two or three times a month. I mean, the whole album. I just put it on in the background. You know, I just listened to it. My my daughter knows the lyrics to most of the songs featured on it. You know, my wife is a fan, and uh, you know, people who come up to the house to visit, they know this is one of Herman's favorite albums because I just keep playing it in the back. <laughs> you know, um, and you know, it's uh, it, it's for me personally, it was an experience that you know I haven't had with many other artists. It's kind of like you're discovering, you know, an old recording, and you realize that old recording is better than what you've been listening to so far from one of your favorite artists. And this is the, possibly the first time that happened to me, and the most significant uh, experience that I've had in that line, uh, just because of the sheer madness but also the sheer brilliance of the live performance and you know like sam was playing predominantly to black audiences live you know in the 60s um uh, obviously the copacabana crowd were all white but you know what i mean if he did like tours right so this infused sam with an 
with an extra energy. Like you say, he became someone who was he wanted to be, he was supposed to be. He was free. He wasn't constrained by, you know, what the record label wanted of him. Of course, they, they you know, became all, um, you know, uh, hands-on afterwards with the release of the album. But during the performance, it was him and him alone. It wasn't him being what others was expecting him to be. And this is why this performance is so great and why the album is so fantastic and seminal and should be one of the greatest albums of all time. Even though I, I agree with your point too, where you say it's not, it cannot be considered your favorite album because albums need to tell sort of a story for me. Mm-hmm. You know, um, this is definitely one of the greatest live performance albums of all time. And my absolute favorite in my Sam Cooke collection. And uh, to get back to our favorite song, the best version of Bring It On Home to Me. This album brings it on home for us, <laughs> the whole Sam Cooke experience in one package. So, yeah, classic. I, I feel like over the last two two hours, I've discovered my other brother. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, that's why I wanted to get on the show with Cook. I mean, for, for me, it, it's a bit of a different you know angle that i didn't want to mention too much because it is black history month and you know that's that's the thing in america but for me it's very near and dear to my you know uh childhood because you know we were stuck in a community where you had to survive by not saying speaking your mind you know what i mean ryan so my family being liberal and and us championing you know the rights of black people and having black friends even back then it was considered a taboo and yet we did that. And so, you know, all of these great black artists, Sam Cooke, chief among them, was seminal in me, you know, sort of transforming and transforming other people uh, unsuccessfully. But for me, I think successfully comics and, you know, uh, music and um, the odd, you know, uh, movie here and there. But um, I'd say music, first and foremost, is what made me a better person and one of the reasons is because of soul music because of people like sam cook because you can tell people look we're all just the same we're all brilliant we're all we all have talent you know there, there's no racial element involved you know so sam is the best at that and i think an ambassador for humanity not just for the black community but um yeah so you know you know you and i both come from different you know sides to it but ultimately we end up at the same point Amen. Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah, that, that's, that's probably a good place to leave. Yeah. I just want to mention as, as we go, I mean, we've, this, this conversation was for one thing longer than I expected, but also so much more gratifying and enjoyable. And I, I, I loved having this discussion and among all of our praise and, and the way we, we talk about Sam as an innovator, as a writer, as a, an artist and a pioneer I also I, I can't stress enough just like the quality of his voice, just on a very very like simple kind of like superficial level, like of all of these great mm. singers from this genre, I just think he just to me he just sang better than all of the others. So that yeah. something yeah. something that I, simple I have, too. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I have to agree with you. Uh, Sam had this unique sound that you know is Sam Cooke whenever you hear him, mm-hmm. and that's why you know many people who don't even know it's Sam Cooke recognize the music and and you know why one of my friends that i mentioned earlier said man this guy's good you know (laughs) and him being what he was but still saying that that shows you know his voice is so far-reaching and universally loved that how can you not love this guy 
who was, well, arguably blessed, but he also worked very hard to perfect this talent of his. And um, it shows, you know, in that short life that he lived, Ryan, that he accomplished so much and meant so much to so many people. And because of that seminal voice of his being right at the the forefront of that uh, makes him one of the greats. All righty. Uh, Herman, thank you so much for uh, appearing on this episode of Fire and Water Records and talking about the legendary Sam Cooke with me. Where else can people find you if they want to hear more about you and your, well, not so much musical interests, but in, in the other realm that you're talking about? Where else can people find you? Well, um, yeah, I'm like you mentioned earlier, I'm doing The Long Box of Darkness with my co-host Misty Graves. It's a horror comic podcast. Um, we used to write the coattails of, you know, Midnight, the podcasting hour, but the coat has been completely disintegrated. Uh, uh, and so now we're just uh, chugging along, you know, aimlessly without in, any mentor. <laughs> so I wonder whose fault it. is that. You don't need it. <laughs> yeah, right. Anyway, and then, um, you know, so Longbox of Darkness, uh, horror comic podcast. And then we're on Twitter at Dark Longbox. And then I'm also doing with my friend Billy Delicious um, – into the Weird, a Marvel Bronze Age comic book podcast, predominantly focusing on Doctor Strange, but also the wackiness and the weirdness of Marvel Bronze Age. And um, my love for uh, soul and 70s music sometimes comes through in that song because I know we're not supposed to be doing that because uh, Into the Weird is not a show that promotes music. But at the very end, we always have a, a little clip of 1970s music that mm-hmm. meant a lot to me personally. Um, and I always put it at the end of the show if, if it speaks to something we talked about in the episode. So that's where I get my, my musical kicks in in the podcasting realm, <laughs> other than listening to, obviously, Fire and Water Records, which is one of my you know favorite shows, Ryan. So um, this has been definitely one of my dreams to be on the Fire Water Records show. You're already and on. I, again. You, I'm not going to delete yeah. this episode. You don't have to kiss up to me anymore. <laughs> No, I'm just saying that I'm hoping for a repeat, uh, you know, <laughs> appearance. So there's always the possibility of that. <laughs> anyway, Ryan, man, so I'm going to end with saying that, yeah, we do comic book shows, but this was one of my favorite guest appearances that I've had. So thanks for that. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for saying so. And thanks again for being my guest here. Uh, folks, Fire and Water Records is a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com, as well as Facebook and Twitter. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on how you can support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. You can also support the show by going to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave us a nice five-star review. Every review for Fire and Water Records helps push this podcast to a wider and wider audience. All music clips and quoted lyrics are used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening, and until next time. Bring it on, that good love baby. Bring it on, everybody's with me. Everybody's with me tonight. Look, listen, let me hear you say yeah. Yeah, yeah, if you with me. Yeah, say yeah. Right, not good luck. That sounds pretty good to me. I want you to do that for me one more time. You gotta do that for me one more time, huh? Let me hear you say yeah, 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 yeah. Say yeah, yeah, oh yeah, oh. Bring it to me. <laughs> I better leave that alone and bring it on home with me. Yeah. 
bring it on home.